Hi, and welcome back to the latest episode of A Guy and a Gal podcast, where today we are joined by our second guest, Georgia Attlesey. Woo! Oh, sorry, I don't know why I always do the woohoo. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> woohoo! Aside from my woohoos, Georgia is a creative producer, freelancer. She's the founder of Pudding, which is an online community for those in the arts. And she's going to talk to us a little bit more about what that is and how she started it. Generally, she's, she's also very wise. So wise. I really, I felt like I had to switch it on. In that I know. I was sort of like, okay, it's late on a Sunday. Need to get the brain engaged. I think, as we've said, you and I generally just tend to eat jelly beans and laugh at each other's ridiculous things we say, whereas I feel like we really upped the tone in this episode. Yeah, this time it blew away the grey matter, I'm not going to lie. But I I think (laughs) you all will enjoy the chat that we had. I think it was a very interesting, very sort of honest, brave conversation, and I, I for one, really took a lot from it. Likewise, and it's something a little bit different, which is what we aimed to bring to this series. So on that note, let's get it underway. Here we go. And welcome back to the latest episode of A Guy and a Gal podcast. And this week we're joined by Georgia Attlesey. Very pleased to have her. So let me do a bit of an intro on you, Georgia, as well as my friend and neighbour. Georgia is a creative producer making big ideas more accessible through culture and is the founder of Pudding. We'll hear more about that later on in the podcast. But Georgia has programmed and delivered large-scale events from prize ceremonies to festivals, gigs and performances. She now works freelance and runs the Achates Philanthropy Prize and oversees public programming for the London Film School. Georgia is a roundhouse creative entrepreneur alumni and a fellow of the Royal Society of the Arts. Georgia has spoken on the arts and change at the Barbican, the South Bank Centre and the Welcome Collection. And she also mentors for the roundhouse and the arts emergency. Whew, Georgia, a lot of accolades. This is epic. Yeah, big shot, isn't it? <laughs> But we're very glad that you're able to join us today. So thank you for joining us. Oh, real pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Guy and Gal. You're so welcome. So Georgia, you've previously described yourself as a sort of self-styled culture wanker. And I think a lot of my references in that intro, be it, you know, from the Barbican, South Bank Centre to the How the Light Gets In Festival. Yeah, I can see that. Bit of a culture wanker. Tell us about it though. How did you, how did this whole journey start? Like, you know, what got you into this career trajectory? So I have just always spent all of my spare time going to events. So from the age of about 15, I just loved going to hear people in discussion or um, I loved the thrill of a live arts event. I loved that moment of being in a room with a new idea on stage that you hadn't encountered for the first time. And it might be a gig, it might be some comedy. And throughout kind of my secondary school years and throughout my and university education, I would travel all across the country, like in hunt and in pursuit of the stuff that I thought was most interesting. So I would travel down for events that I thought looked fascinating and studied English literature. So I was kind of surrounded by interesting perspectives and people all the time there. It never ever crossed my mind that the thing that I spent all of my free time doing, which was going to other people's events, was actually a job and was actually quite a tenable job. Um, and realised that the thing that I was going to spend the rest of my life doing was a thing that I'd already been spending like the first half of my life doing, which was going and consuming brilliant content. The reason I talk about being 
a culture wanker and it is provocative and it's part of the language that I always use to talk about myself is because I'm trying to pull away some of that kind of the mystery of what it is to be a, a person working in the arts. And I, and I guess, you know, playing on that idea that, you know, in my friendship group, I serve the role of being the culture wanker. Like whether or not you've got, if you've got your mum coming into town for an exhibition or, you know, you need something like cool to take your sister to. I was kind of just sick of being the person that everyone was asking about what to go and do. And I realised that actually, like my slight annoyance was actually a much bigger problem which is that people don't feel like the arts are a space for them unless they're part of the arts world and so the terminology around culture wanker is to bring some levity and some humor to the fact that I don't think that the, the culture wanker club should be an elite one and I think that in me starting to break down the barriers and talk about it in an ironic and sarcastic way it shows that there is space for everyone and that's what I've been doing with pudding that sounds awesome I think one of the reasons we wanted to get you on the podcast in the first place is Matt was telling me all about pudding and what you've created so can you give us a bit of an explanation of what pudding is how it works and also the reason behind the name Yes, of course. So Pudding is a post-event forum for audiences to digest what they've seen on stage. So if you go into a lobby or if you go into the foyer after a performance, you'll feel these spaces kind of humming with ideas, people revved up on kind of opinions and what they've just seen and really excited about the experience that they've just had. And so kind of as audience members, we come out of that performance kind of revved up and ready to take on the world. Then we jump on the tube, we go home filled with the best intentions and wake up the next morning as if nothing had happened. And it's a massive problem for arts organisations too, um, because the lack of engagement at that point means they're not getting to know their audiences better. The arts sector has a massive problem with not demonstrating its social impact. So I wanted to create space for conversation, for discussion, for all of those foyer moments that are happening between people that go and see culture, to bring all of those conversations together in a way that changes the way that we feel about the arts sector. I love that. So what's it like as a user of pudding? The pudding is a way of making sure that people feel welcome and there's always dessert and there's always kind of light touch facilitation, but people can come and go as they want. And then the other idea with it is that when you come to a pudding, you can then sign up to an after dinner mint. And that's an email reminder that arrives in your inbox a week later. So you pick one element of that evening's performance that you want to be nudged about. And it might be a line that the actor said, or it might be the way that a bit of light looked on the shoes, or it might be, I really want to learn more about um, the incarceration system in the UK. Uh, and I want to be reminded to do that, or I want to be nudged to book another show. So a week later, whatever it is that you've selected as an audience member is sent to you in your inbox as a way of, again, giving you time to digest. And then arts organisations um, receive a party bag, which is a report containing all of the findings from the pudding. So what people are signing up to and the social change that they're committing to, but also what audiences got out of the experience and what they are taking from it so that they can then demonstrate their impact. So they can write funding applications and, you know, better copies of bringing arts audiences together. It's an undeniably smart idea. but uh, <laughs> Even if you say so yourself. Yeah, but, but at its core is just um, giving arts audiences a bit of cake and an opportunity to chat. So the arts performance is the dinner. 
and then the conversation afterwards is the is the pudding just like a meal like like a meal without dessert an arts performance isn't complete until you've had pudding afterwards until you've taken the, the moment to savor that experience and done something with it yourself I love that it's called pudding because I said to Matt before we recorded this so why pudding and then when he explained I was like that is great I love what you've just said about the after dinner mint as well mm -hmm. reference to food fabulous and I also think yeah well every time I go to the theatre I go to an event I always say I never I can never sleep when I get home so you get home from the theatre and you've got that buzz and I will always have to go home and do something I can never go home and mm -hmm. go to bed because you sort of have that post cultural experience glow almost in a way that you, yeah. come you can't <laughs> sit and relax it's like being on a come down <laughs> Literally, like the theatre buzz. I think it's more of like a, like I think it's more of like a post-coital glow, no? It's more of like a, <laughs> like, you know, like you've, you're very satisfied, you're excited. I think it's more that than a come down, if I'm honest. If you go anywhere else now, if you have any other form of experience, whether that be, I don't know, in retail and hospitality, you go home and you will generally receive a follow-up, like, how was your visit? Review us on TripAdvisor, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And now you say, I'm like, why isn't there something like this for the arts already? The other, yeah, yeah, the, the, the potential for pudding is huge. So I'm already <laughs> developing a cinema strand because I think, I mean, I've learned that it's going to be, I mean, it's, it's going to be incredibly hard to get cinema audiences back into those spaces after the pandemic you know audience take up wasn't at the mm -hmm. same numbers that we'd expected during the brief period the cinemas were open um but i think the thing that is going to make a, a cinematic performance more compelling is the chance to chat and i think we're going to see a lot more events based cinema um, and opportunities for people to congregate right i mean you go to a cinema you go to an arts event then not two separate things they are of course exactly the same thing you're in a room full of 200 to 1,000 people that have already got something in common with you, which is that they decided that whatever is on was worth seeing. And yet we don't get a chance to get to know each other. So I think cinemas are going to have to start playing with formats like that. But also I'm developing a strand of pudding that is very commercial and it's for corporates, you know, as a way of digesting training days and as a space to exist on conferences because it's, you know, it's really just a... A friendlier approach to networking so I think the potential for pudding is quite significant. My question I was going to ask to you a minute ago is that so for anyone who's maybe listening and their only experience of culture is either going to the Odeon and sitting on a sticky seat and mm. eating a five pound bag of popcorn or going to the Natural History Museum or you know maybe going to winter wonderland you know like and that's like they're the only thing that they've ever done you know that's that's by way of culture and it's just not something that they want to spend their money and their time on what would you say mm. to them like what what would be your kind of sales pitch well i should also be really clear that i'm not a kind of a cultural evangelist i don't think that it has to be for everyone and actually pudding isn't at all about converting people but it's about trying to change the way that arts organisations interact with their audiences so that if people are curious, that those spaces make them feel more welcome. I don't think all of it is for everyone. I don't think all of it should be for everyone. And I don't think that people should ever feel guilty about not enjoying it. And I think that that's another part of it is that people should be able to go and see stuff and have conversations and go, actually, that really wasn't for me. And here's why I think it's not for me. Culture has this top-down approach that it just shouldn't have. So that's what I'm trying to challenge. 
So, Georgia, I guess, you know, for many people who are listening, the biggest thing that they would probably find impressive about what you're doing is that you're doing this on your own and you're not doing this within the confines of an organization or um, working for a big business. And, you know, myself included, I've always had dreams and ideas about going and doing a startup or working for myself or freelancing but then the sort of harsh reality of life comes and sort of hits you in the face and you're like well how am I going to pay for my rent or pay for the nice things I like in life and I think you know I don't know if you've read the book I think like a monk by Jay Shetty but he it's a really great book if you've never read it and I was reading it this afternoon and one of the things that came up was all about fear and I'm going to just sort of read you the quote but then I want to ask you about your relationship with fear because I think I think it would be really interesting just to kind of get your take. But what he touches on is that 20 years ago in the Arizona desert, the scientists built this biosphere and the the whole concept was that they had, they had everything perfect, the optimum amount of light, the optimum amount of nutrients, the optimum temperature, everything was perfect to sustain life. And everything was purified and controlled within, you know, an inch of, <laughs> of being perfect. And what they found is that, all the plants and stuff were growing lovely, but the trees, every time they would get to a certain height, would fall over and they'd die. And they couldn't work out what on earth was happening. And after like loads of research, what they discovered was that the one thing they hadn't thought about was wind. And the trees were not being buffeted as they would in the wilderness. And what it said is that the wind helps your roots grow stronger and the bark grow stronger. And he was using it as an analogy for life and that, you know, often we try and avoid fear so much and just ignore it and go, do you know what? I'm going to just do what is easy and put my head in the sand and, you know, just get on with the easy path. I think what you're doing is almost the opposite of that. And I think that's really admirable. But I also I'm just kind of intrigued, like off the basis of that analogy, like what what is your relationship with fear? Like, how have you kind of got yourself to a point that you're like, do you know what? I'm feeling that fear, but I'm just going to do it anyway. Yes, and that's the name of another book, right? Um, <laughs> feel the fear and do it anyway. Exciting question, interesting metaphor. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting and powerful kind of thing to have brought up. I mean, for anyone listening, pudding is part of my career, which I'm developing. I mean, I give a day of my week to pudding pro bono in addition to working as a freelance producer. So putting on events for other people and there is a lot of trepidation in it and going freelance was a big decision. I got to a point in my mid twenties where I think I just felt like I was coasting. Everything was consistent and I was content, but I just always felt like I had something in me I had a good big idea in me but I didn't know what it was and I you know had like a very stable relationship and I had a very stable group of friends but something about it was just dissatisfying um and I realized it's because I wasn't actually being proactive enough and pushing myself to make the difficult decisions that I knew I needed to make which is that at that time content wasn't enough and I became very aware um, that I would much rather pick a rockier route, even if uh, it didn't always go to plan. And so I basically had to uh, lean into the wind uh, and spent kind of a, nice. a six month period where I um, unstitched quite a lot of the things in my life um, and then spent a couple of years rebuilding them. Um, and it's been a really 
a really amazing journey. Um, you know, I had a year of being brave uh, and then I had a year of doing anything that I wanted to do. And basically the idea was if a thought crossed my mind or if, um, if I saw something that I wanted or if I saw an opportunity or a holiday destination, uh, I just gave myself a year's grace and was like, whatever it is, I'll say yes to it. And I was still working full time at that time. But, you know, in that first year of being brave, I spent a lot of time thinking about what it is that I've been driven by as an individual and what, what is it that seems important to me. And to me, the thing that seems important is a sense of connection and people feeling at home with other people and people feeling like big ideas are for them. And I, I reflected on all of the brilliant organisations I'd worked with and I realised that the thing that was drawing the silver kind of thread or the golden thread, I think it is, that was going through them was that they were all about changing the way that people thought about difficult subjects. And then when I, as soon as I realised that, I realised I kind of became fearless because I realised that I had an identity and a purpose. And that's what made me kind of go freelance because I realised that it wasn't the project that I was working on that I loved. It was the fact that I was helping people transform those attitudes. One book that I read a couple of years ago that I think about and talk about every day is Hope in the Dark by Rebecca Solnit, which talks about the potential and the excitement of uncertainty and how important it is to, to be brave. She says that to hope is to be brave, it's to, to be vulnerable, it's to believe that another world might be possible. And this idea of believing that another world is possible and that being the thing that gives you stimulus and impetus is the thing that's driven me I mean that I read that book and I also read The Master's Tools Will Not Dismantle The Master's House by Audre Lorde um, and I read those kind of back to back and again those two books have just become my moral compass ever since so I think you have to be brave and it's almost more important to be brave when it feels most difficult. I guess anyone listening to this who's having you know similar thoughts a bit like in the way that you said that you know, you realise that you got to a point where everything was kind of fine, but it wasn't enough. You weren't content, even though things were stable and your life was good. For anyone sort of feeling the same kind of thing, what would you say to them about just having that year or saying, do you know what, I am going to find what it is that uh, is my passion or what really inspires me? What would be your advice? I mean, we're living in a global pandemic. This new context that we have changes things slightly. Um, in some ways, it kind of offers you that jolt that you kind of need to mix things up you know what you kind of described of having that own realization sometimes people need a bit of a kick I think this pandemic is kind of almost giving a lot of people that kick yeah and actually really interestingly I was surprised that I didn't have a more extreme reaction to the lifestyle change that the pandemic brought about because I guess I'd had that wobble two years ago you know I'd spent six years at that point in full-time employment where you get up at a certain time you clock in you clock out you know your lunch hour looks like this you're you know you rush home or you rush to go to an exercise class or to the theater and so a lot of people I think at the start of the pandemic who had who were used to having a nine to five a ten to six or ten to eight whatever it might be found that feeling of oh, actually, all of these decisions and these rules that are in place are kind of arbitrary. You know, you, you, people kind of had the rug pulled from underneath their feet when they realised that there was no real reason that they were commuting for two hours a day when they could do their job from home. Or there was no real 
need for them to be in meetings that were going to eat up loads of their time but not be worthwhile or for them to jump on a plane to go and see someone. I think a lot of people realise the arbitrariness of a lot of aspects of their life in the early part of the pandemic which is a projection because that's not something that I experienced because what I experienced was the inverse of that which was realising at the start of the pandemic that almost all of the things that I spend my time doing in my working day are things that I control so I actively have those kind of my working day doesn't necessarily start at nine it doesn't necessarily start at 10 so that uncertainty is one that you just are used to leveraging and managing as a freelancer or someone that has a portfolio career or someone that is self-employed whichever kind of terminology makes sense to you so I think the, the the exciting thing about the start of the pandemic was that it wasn't that we like ha we, we had uncertainty thrust upon us it's that uncertainty was revealed as the inherent condition of our lives anyway we were just coming face to face with it we didn't realize that we had more control before we actually realized how little control we had we've had all along and I think for some people that's been incredibly liberating um and you've chatted about some of the other people who are coming on the podcast and things that they have done during this time you know realizing that the you know that some ceilings are self-imposed and that there are not necessarily particular ways of doing things and I think that you know it's interesting I think something that someone else commented on another um, recording that we did was about, you know, we all have the same amount of time in the day. And actually it's, it's kind of how you choose to use this time, either to do something bigger, bolder, better, or to sit and, you know, accept that the situation is as is. But, but to anyone listening who is not sure about the career that they're in or is thinking about going freelance, I, I mean, I did wrestle with it for a really long time and I think you know when it's the right thing to do I think you know like it's almost like the scales are like teetering and then something happens that just tips them and for me it was coming out of a long-term relationship that made me really have to reassess my values and what it was that I stood for outside of a long-term relationship and kind of get to know myself that I then was I able to be quite decisive about my development as an individual for anyone who's thinking about it but feels like they're unable to make that decision at the moment that that's okay it takes a really long time I cling to the song everybody's free to wear sunscreen by Baz Luhrmann this like trite stoner song from the 90s but it's got so many golden lines in it and there's a really brilliant line in it where he says he's talking about comparing yourself to others and he says but in the end the road is long and the the race is only ever with yourself wow george like thank you so much for sharing that i think you, you put it really eloquently of just kind of what it is that drives you and you know you definitely inspired a bit inside me that's like hmm, what am i gonna do with my <laughs> with my 2021 thank you so much for for sharing all of that with us 100 percent. i think you've also inspired me from a culture perspective to actually get out and see more and do more i think this year we've been inside so much it's definitely something that i've missed things but i am very much guilty of what you said before if you said in your friendship group you're the person that people come to to see what's going on and i certainly rely on friends i've got one friend in particular who is fantastic at that she always knows what's going on she knows where the cheap tickets are and she says do you want to do this in six months time and i just say yes and hand over the money and some of the best things i've seen 
things that I didn't know what they were before, but I've just gone because she told me she had a cheap deal and I've been like, yeah, all right. So on that note, if people want to get involved with pudding, if they want to find out more, if they want to open their eyes to what's out there, how do they get involved? How do they sign up? Sure. So the easiest way of finding out more about pudding is to give me a quick Google and follow my website. So that is www.georgiaattlesey.com. And Attle is spelt like battle uh, or cattle, depending on where your preferences are. And then sey.com. So www.georgiaattlesey.com. And there's a whole page there about pudding and what it's up to. And, and there's an opportunity to, to join the newsletter and, and find out more that way. Um, in terms of other brilliant places to find out what's going on, one newsletter that I'd really recommend uh, everyone subscribes to is called Cheapskate. And it is a newsletter um, that lists the best free online and in-person events taking place. At the moment, it's just in London, but that's been a really helpful source of finding out what's on. There's as much out there as you're ready to consume. And there's some amazing digital content out there at the moment as well. I think that's it partly as well, like being ready to consume. I know for me, I certainly, once I see one thing in the theatre, I'm then much more likely to go and then book the next show. Because if I don't do anything yeah, for a few months, it's almost like I forget. And it's, sort of, it's something that I don't do. So hopefully... People are going to get involved with all those places you've recommended. They're going to get involved with pudding and um, you'll see a lot more action on there. Great. Okay, so in this part of the podcast, we are going to ask Georgia some questions that we sent over in advance. And obviously we are a guy and a gal. So the very first question is going to be, Georgia, if you were a guy for a day, what would you do? So I think I would want to just do as many quite normative or um, ordinary experiences as possible because I'm quite interested in what um, the power dynamic is so I'd, I'd like to go into uh, a restaurant and see what it's like to get seated at a table I'd like to walk into a bar and see how quickly I get served I'd like to um, see what it's like to be uh, to be stuck at a tube station and, and ask for help I guess as a way of both getting a perspective on my own privilege and also understanding the ways in which gender plays into the way that my behavior is coded and interpreted um yeah i'd be really fascinated by that there was a really interesting experiment they did with dustin hoffman where they dressed him up as a woman um so that he could experience what it was like to be a woman they put you know put these prosthetics on and he realized that he became as a woman very very invisible but it wasn't because he wasn't a man it was actually because they'd only been able to make him quite an ordinary looking woman so he felt invisible and kind of heartbroken that without his kind of lovely silver fox good looks that he was just kind of passed over and I think actually you know I know that this podcast is called the guy and the gal but I think spend a day in tons of other people's shoes would be fascinating like I'd love to know what it is it's like to do to be very conventionally beautiful for a day and to see how people treat you that way and I'd love to be able to see what someone's experiences are who has a very different set of kind of privileges or values to mine are i think what you're talking about there is it's, it's, they call it pretty privilege don't they in the way that if you are sort of conventionally pretty or attractive then you experience a different kind of world it's quite interesting our guest last week mark when we asked the same question in reverse what would you do for a day if you were a, a gal he said the same thing he was like i want to sort of experience that gender discrimination and what people go through on a day-to-day -day basis in order that when he as he said it then came back into his own body as a male he could apply that to everyday life I mean it's it's one of those things I guess unless you 
ultimately go through a sex change. It'll be very difficult as a guy or a gal to experience that the other way around. I read a book a few years ago called The Gender Games by an author called Juno Dawson. What a great name. Yes, Mm -hmm. she's a brilliant trans writer. She writes a lot of teenage fiction, but her book, The Gender Games, is all about how gender is a social construct and we grow up believing that gender is set in stone but it's absolutely not and it really sort of opened my eyes to this kind of thing and I think one of the lines in the book is the perspective of men and women from someone who's been both and it really makes you think doesn't it and I think it's quite interesting that the two guests we've asked this to you've both said the same thing you'd like to sort of see what it's like on I guess the other side yeah like a non-problematic version of what women want because Mm. I kind of like the idea of that film is so deeply unsettling and misogynistic that it undermines any of its kind of feminist slant but yeah this idea that 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 protagonist just does all of those things just so that he can be better at getting women into bed fascinating um i think with this podcast it's obviously a guy and a gal and we always say talk about things from a guy and a gal's perspective and in a lot of ways matt and i do sort of fall into the traditional gender stereotypes and we do things Mm. in a certain way but then a lot of the time when we are answering these questions when people have said oh why do guys do this or girls do that you and I Matt both go well hang on a minute I don't actually do that Mm. and it's funny isn't it that we perceive that things must be done in a certain way because you're a guy or a gal but actually it's not the case at all Uh, yeah in fact actually that's something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about in the last year or so particularly that I think there are parts of my identity are quite affronting to people and they're not what people expect from a woman and this idea and also from a straight woman I think that I've really kind of decided to lean into that that actually there are multiple ways of being a cis straight woman and and I think that we're so used to those stereotypes or those archetypes that we are affronted by anything separate to them but I think the the bleed and the discrepancy and the multitude of those different identities is so important well it's it's i think because you're you're very confident and you're very you're sort of able to um sort of self-deprecate and make fun of yourself and you're you're very good at putting other people at ease i'd say you know in a conversation which i think that it takes people off guard because i think there is that sort of expectation where you meet a woman or a girl and you kind of just expect them to just be quite nice and you know fill that that female stereotype of just a sort of nice friendly person but not necessarily someone who not someone who who basically um challenges you and I think that you do that you you challenge and I think that's where I can kind of understand what you're saying of it does affront people sometimes I can imagine it's a whole big conversation we could have about gender stereotypes and why women are meant to be sort of demure and petite and sub- submissive, I guess. Whereas why is that? What, those aren't necessarily feminine attributes at all. No. I'm yeah, d- and I think it comes into the conversation around humour quite a lot as well. Like, you know, mm. that people expect women's humour to be a particular way. And I think if you've got quite a dry sense of humour, uh, an uncompromisingly dry sense of humour, as I think I do, George seems like you might be on a similar page with some of that uh, that the men kind of don't know how to handle it because they kind if you're very sarcastic men kind of can't understand that you might not be being sincere in your kind of perceived response to what they're saying it's quite disarming I think and I think for me that's where a lot of my power comes from is for the is from the other person not necessarily knowing whether or not I'm being straight-faced about it but I did you know I've spent years being told that my 
like I was quite laddie or that I was um you know my sense of humor was quite tomboyish and I like I'm now quite um cross about it because it checked it codified the way that I thought about myself and actually there are multi you know there are multiple ways of existing in that identity so I think everything you've actually just described is ultimately actually just a different personality trait and we all have different personalities and those things shouldn't necessarily be associated with a specific gender but I think that is a whole different topic that we could go on about for absolutely hours so I'm going to bring you on to our next question which is what is the best thing that's happened to you in 2020? So in order to answer this question I did a little bit of thinking so every year I take no matter what day it is I take the 2nd of January off as a planning day and I think about everything I've achieved in the last year and everything I want to achieve in the next year and and then I just create a bucket list of everything that I want to get ticked off in that year and they'll be like overhangs there'll be things I've had on that list for like three years I haven't got around to doing and I thought heartbreakingly that it would be a nice thing to do to pull out my 2020 list from the 2nd of January this year to see um <laughs> to see oh dear it's the magic eight ball got it right and and actually I was dreading looking at it but actually going through it with a couple of like quite seismic and quite notable exceptions that I think are problematic in their own right I've managed to do quite a lot of it and I hadn't even realized so most importantly, I've been able to go to the Imperial War Museum, <laughs> which has been a which has been a, an outstanding agenda item. I think the last three years, you know, it, it is sad looking through it at trips that didn't happen. I was expecting to spend a month in the states on a research trip this year um, that obviously hasn't been able to go ahead. But I think my challenge for myself this year is that because I've been focusing on my career quite a lot, because my career is so related to my identity and the work that I am doing, um, I'd wanted to think more about my personal life. And, uh, and so actually, I wanted to think about my relationship with my body a lot this year. Um, so actually, the big thing I wanted to change this year was to change the way I felt about my physical appearance. And I wanted to spend less time worrying about my appearance and to, and to feel kind of more desired and more desirable and reader she nailed it I'm delighted <laughs> to say that in 2020 that that relationship is one that has changed a lot there's another line in the Baz Luhrmann song where he says where he talks about how you'll never really know how beautiful you look at the time so you should try and you should try and embrace it because he says 20 years from now you'll look back on photos of yourself and you can't you won't be able to believe how fabulous you really look so what I the challenge I wanted to set myself for this year was to be able to feel the way I feel when I look at photos from myself as an 18 year old but in the moment now and that's taken a lot of work. It's taken a lot of digging for me to, to get there. But that's I feel awesome. like I've got there. Do you know um, what? I read something recently that said if you write things down or successful people who achieve things, write them down. If you write them down, you're 10 times more likely to action them and make them happen. So it makes them happen. So it's interesting you say that you do that on the 2nd of January every year. I'm now thinking, oh, I should do that. I did it in 2019. Yeah. And I genuinely, I did a personal development workshop and we got an email six months later and it said, and basically she emailed us the things that we'd written down. And mm. I looked back and I was shocked to see that I had actually done most of the things that I said I would. 
and it gives yeah. you the real sense of achievement of oh yeah i have actually done something this year so i'm gonna get thinking accountability about 2021 yeah. what i'm gonna do learning how to smile in photos that's another one that i nailed this year um <laughs> and also georgia so becoming hours. friends with your neighbor <laughs> Look at i i think that in some ways from a personal perspective where you don't really have much time to reflect and spend with like people in your immediate circle and like so georgia and i where we live we live in the same building it's like a it's a terrace building that's cut out into flats and you'd been there from what like july the year before mm. and we we hadn't really had much interaction at all until sort of lockdown then forced us to be like well we're all in this building we can't go anywhere yeah, else yep. so you know let, yep. let's converse let's, and let's, let's be pals exactly uh, yeah and then you learn that friends are just the family you choose for yourself don't you matt and we've done a lot of live laugh loving um, <laughs> over these last of, over these last nine months i mean the business thing i i think is bad because everyone is busy it's about it's actually about self-importance you, you make time for the stuff that matters yeah. um and so i think you know everyone reprioritizes based on whatever feels like the more important thing in that instance mm. and what someone really means when they say i'm sorry i've been really busy is i'm sorry i haven't been able to prioritize you and it might yeah. be because they didn't want to prioritize you or it might be that they were unable to because they had you know work family etc etc um well it's a bit like why do you never prioritize meeting your neighbors we did the same thing we got to know our neighbors so well in lockdown and it was like we actually yeah. made the effort to chat to people i mean ours was i lived in a flat and we had our only outside space was a tiny little balcony outside the back and then the neighbors had one exactly the same on the other side so it would get to like a friday at five six and when it was warm we literally none of us could go outside <laughs> anywhere else we all ended up on the balcony actually i lie i say that it was easter friday good friday that we all met yeah. out there and they became such good pals in lockdown we spent every weekend together because it gets a point it would be like drinks on the balcony at six and it was great and you just think why has it taken us nearly two years of living next to but, each other to get to know each other but isn't this the most amazing thing to also have realized is that actually there is that there's always common ground and there's always a reason to start a conversation with someone i really love meeting new people because you you know when you meet someone you're like scrabbling through things that you've got in both common and that you don't have in common and i think that realizing what's one person like you got your file of facts is, and you're sort of like scrolling yeah, through yeah, yeah. You're like, do you like okay, this so, food no so, so, yeah do you like culture so, oh, so, hey, so no. you don't um, yeah yeah so we don't work in the same industry okay so cool um have you been watching strictly uh, okay uh so it, it it is that rolodex thing but then it, but in hitting off all of the ones that you don't have in common you learn some really interesting things about people that then expand your worldview you know like it's the thing that keeps you together is the fact that you both love aperol spritzes famously in my case, we do <laughs> express you do i my another lockdown discovery another big 2020 discovery was uh, espresso martinis which is absolutely not the drink that you want when there's a 10 p.m curfew and so you go home and you're just buzzing <laughs> for eight hours by yourself <laughs> like some kind of like deranged kind of caged animal you're just kind of unable to do anything um i love espresso martinis but i guarantee every time i drink them 5 a.m i'm wide awake well this is the, I can't this do is the thing I can't do it like and you uh, wonder why i get up so early georgia <laughs> there must be a decaf espresso martini out there and if it's not then after i've done i'm done with pudding that's going to be my next business 
Well, um, that sort of uh, brings us to the end of this episode quite nicely, doesn't it? It's going to be the end of pudding, and then <laughs> episode number two with Georgia will be decaf. Decaf. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, high on caffeine. And yes, she, she's answered all of your questions, and she's actually already ticked off all of 2021's to-do list, even though it's December 2020. Yeah, that's exactly what I'd be like. Oh, absolutely fantastic. I look forward to trying a decaf espresso martini. I actually think... I think there's a real market for it. Killer. Yeah. Yeah, I want Ooh, the beautiful taste of an espresso martini, but I don't want to have the buzz that takes me up all night. You know, yeah. So, Georgia, then just bringing it back to a back to a pudding context, what will be your after dinner mint takeaway from this podcast today? Great question. I think in preparing for this podcast, I saw yet again the value of how important it is to make time to reflect because it wasn't until I sat down and looked at this list that I realised how much I'd achieved. And we, you know, we didn't skim the sides of it. So, but I think making time, even if it feels impossible to think about what you've achieved and to celebrate it and how important it is to take a moment to congratulate yourself because it's tough and it's, been a t- and it's been a tough year. And I think we should all make sure that we are uh, embracing our achievements. So Aww, my key takeaway is reflect more so georgia if anyone wants to find out more about pudding or they want to connect with you ask you some more questions we obviously discussed your website but where else can they find you uh so the best places to get hold of me are uh, on my website so that's www.georgeattersley.com or hit me up on linkedin for more uh, banal musings on there uh, on baz lerman <laughs> well, thank you so so much once again yeah thank you georgia really appreciate you taking the time thanks so much for having me it's been a pleasure Well, in the final section of the podcast, it's our favourite bit, which is where we answer one of the questions that has been sent in by you, our lovely listeners. So, uh, Georgie, hit us. What's the question this week? So one of the questions we were asked was, why do boys not invite girls to the pub when girls always invite the boys? So I'm going to contest that slightly in the sense that I think there are plenty of guys who would invite girls to the pub. And there are plenty of occasions when I could say that the girls have definitely had an equal invite. However... What I would say is that girls are generally slightly more social creatures. And so you will be in more frequent contact with your gal pals, be that through the WhatsApp group, be that through calls, FaceTimes, whatever. Whereas guys generally are less connected and sort of in touch all of the time. And I'm probably an exception to that rule. And so that sort of going to the pub and getting together is is quite like a secret time. You very rarely go and sort of chat with the guys and so it then becomes a bit more significant and it's not necessarily about not inviting people and being sort of exclusive it's more about actually there's that one opportunity to sort of chat with your mates and get it off your chest so I I think it's probably something to do with that yeah that's very true and you know what when I first saw this I was like yeah why does that happen the boys were like oh we're going going to the pub with the boys but then I guess to also contest it myself is we definitely do art. It's just a girls' night, ladies' night. Yeah. Going out for drinks with the girls. So you could argue it in the same way. And I would say that uh, very rarely would a guy ever get upset about that. I think it's also probably as basic as a lot of the time when boys go to the pub, it's to watch the football or the rugby because they actually want to watch it. Whereas when the girls go, we do just talk over it. And don't get me wrong, I love a rugby day as much as I was going to say the next man, the next person or individual but 
we do definitely order wine and talk over the top of the sport. So I do get that. And that's why I don't get invited to all the lads days because I want to have a chat too. And I want to talk about like, you know, where you got your shoes or what you, know, what you did on the weekend. They just want to watch the, the game. And so we just got to Interior furnishings. <laughs> exactly. TK Maxx, always the answer. We know that. If it helps, I'd rather have the conversation with you about TK Maxx and furnishings. Well, thanks. I mean, we now know that when we feel excluded, we'll just do that. We'll go to the pub and chat about home furnishings. <laughs> oh, fabulous. Look forward to it. So that brings us to a close of another wonderful podcast. Thank you so much for joining and subscribing. Uh, please do share and uh, like, and even leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That would be really kind. Yeah, thanks again so much for joining, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.